Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focused on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I attended a couple of history classes in college. Classes, not courses. And I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. And I can claim myself as an amateur historian at most. But I am a teacher, so I guess that counts. Today, we have a true footnote of history, mostly because anytime I've read books or textbooks on Roman history, there is literally a footnote about the Mount Vesuvius eruption. And this is one of the perfect examples in history where we have an eyewitness account of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. These are incredibly rare, and we have one. Now, Mount Vesuvius was a volcano, actually is a volcano, a fairly active volcano, that is famous for leveling and destroying and then burying the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. That is about as deep as most footnotes about this event go. We know that Pompeii has revealed all sorts of interesting things about the first century, but it gives us a beautiful window into the life and sentiments of, at the very least, the upper, upper class of Roman life. So we get to talk about two different men who, unfortunately, for the sake of a podcast, have the same name. We're going to be talking about a man named Pliny the Elder and his nephew slash adopted son, Pliny the Younger. Why am I thirsty all of a sudden? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. This episode brought to you by Russian River Brewing. So these two men were from the top, top classes of Roman life. And if the name Pliny strikes your memory just a little bit, It's because Pliny the Elder, at the time of the story we're about to tell, was already a incredibly well-renowned naturalist and writer of the Historia Naturalis, or Natural History, which was the first true attempt to catalog all of human knowledge about nature and sciences. He was thought of almost as a Roman Aristotle in his own lifetime. He was also a widely successful admiral and administrator and had been participating in the early conquesting days of the Roman Empire. So Pliny the Elder, before all of what I'm about to say takes place, was one of the most famous people in Rome. And he was basically living in retirement. And rare for any sort of historical work, we actually still have his natural history. It's it's intact and we have what he writes about involving what the Roman people knew about the world. And it shows a really interesting view of the sciences, as well as, you know, just basic an understanding of how animals work and how the world works. And the fact that they were already, in, you know, 2,000 years ago, approaching the world more or less with the scientific method. And then they'd go off to war and look at the ashes of a fire and make decisions based on omens. So they were balancing superstition (laughs) with science. It wasn't a perfect system quite yet. No, not at all. 
But just to give you context, this is a wealthy group of people. So we're going to open in late August in 79 AD. We are at the seaside town of Messinum, which was a, and still is, beautiful resort, basically. Now, the coast here is in southern Italy, um, along the Mediterranean Sea, and it was, at this point, fairly well populated. There's probably about 50,000 people along the, um, the bay that's there. Naples, the city of Naples, which is now very, very large, was called Neapolis then, is just to the north. This is kind of the, the area, let's say, where the rich would go to live and feel very comfortable. One, an old Roman emperor, Tiberius, had his villa on an island in this same bay. You know, it's, just, it's the classic Mediterranean ocean, you know, Mediterranean ocean-like scene, you know, but less waves and that crystal clear blue water and, you know, there's seagulls, just idyllic. The bay is fairly large, but not absolutely massive. And there was a naval port there. And Planet the Elder, though he's in this kind of quasi-retirement, he still has a lot of power over the Navy because that's what he was the main leader of. The story actually is told from the perspective of Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger, at this point, will be our main focus, unless I say otherwise, in his story of what happens to both himself and his uncle-slash-father, Pliny the Elder. It was very common in Roman society for a childless, powerful man to adopt another child as his own. So the fact that he was able to adopt his nephew just made it easier for him. Pliny the Elder is in his, he's somewhere in his 50s, and Pliny the Younger is 18. So that's a fairly large generational difference for this time in history. I mean, there yeah. were over 30 years difference between them. And um, Pliny the Younger's mother is Pliny the Elder's sister. So that's the people involved here. There's really only three. And so the story starts with Pliny the Younger, and he writes all of this in letters, which I'll get to. Pliny the Younger is sitting and relaxing, think sprawled out on a couch with little grapes on the <laughs> vine, being fanned. He's, be he's being a real stereotype right now. He's being a real stereotype right now. He writes with that, like, foppish sense of ease that you get um he's the kind of person who says oh we summer here yes <laughs> yes i always think of the romans as being like aristocratic british people and it must just, be because they're, they're the always wasps, they're the wasps of the mediterranean they're the wasps of the mediterranean they before the peans frosting exists <laughs> yes but i because i think maybe in movies they always have british accents yeah they do they, they, what is it just because the only time I've ever seen this story told was on an episode of Doctor Who? That might be influencing this, yes. <laughs> huh. Regardless. Yeah. Edit that out. <laughs> I see I see Pliny the Younger relaxing. He he's proudly writes that he was reading Livy, which is a famous Roman writer, and he's do, you know, participating in his studies that his uncle um, he does usually call him his uncle. His uncle told him to do, and so he's just, he's being a good boy, and he's relaxing in this beautiful, sunny day. Okay? Then, his mother walks up to him and tells him, pulls his uncle over and says, there's a weird cloud in the distance. Which, okay, clouds aren't that scary. But when they look at it, they realize that this is not the kind of cloud they wanted to see. Because, I'll describe it as... Pliny the Younger describes it. It had the general appearance that can be best expressed as being like an umbrella pine. So like a pine tree, like a Christmas tree. For it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk 
and then split off into branches. I imagine because it was thrust upwards by the first blast and then, then left unsupported as the pressure subsided. Or else it was borne down by its own weight so that it spread out and gradually dispersed. Sometimes it looked white, sometimes blotched and dirty, according to the amount of soil and ashes it carried with it. So what this tells me is immediately he knows it's a volcanic eruption. Yeah, I mean, describing a cloud as being a result of a blast is, it's telling, it's telling. Not a lot of clouds are described that way. Definitely not. But I do like the fact that he, he describes it in a way as if he's trying to explain not only what happened, but how it happened. Yeah. I mean, that's a physics discussion. Basically, he says there's, there's a force. Yeah, and he has multiple theories. Yeah. A force that's launching it in the air. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, it's being weighted down, either because there's not enough force to launch it up or it's just too heavy. And so because of that, it keeps branching and falling, branching and falling, and it looks like a pine tree to them. Well... There had been warning signs in about 15 years before that there, it was a likely volcanic eruption. But Pliny the Younger writes that, well, in Campania, where they are, that's constant and normal. Italy, as today, just like California, where we currently are, is volcanically active and frequently hit by earthquakes. So the people, even though, though they were aware that volcanic eruptions can happen... They have no reason to think one's going to happen because one hadn't happened for a long time. There is evidence that a volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius had wiped out this area in about 1600 BC. And we're in 79 AD. Okay, so you got... It erupts about every 2,000 years. And so what, they know... What year are we recording in right now? <laughs> it's erupted since. Oh, okay. Spoilers. Um, so they know that volcanoes exist. They And... Notice how he doesn't have any superstition in there. There's no talk of gods. There's no talk of judgment. It is, this is a volcano that is erupting. So, immediately, if I were in this situation, I would run away. That seems logical. Big exploding mountain filled with ash and fire. Run away. Pliny the Younger goes back to reading Livy. Pliny the Elder sits down and reads as well. And they just simply watch it in the distance. It's really close to them. If you want to go look on a map, go look at a map and go look at where Messinum is compared to where Mount Vesuvius is. It is, Mount Vesuvius is due east and only by like a dozen miles. It is right next to it. Why the blase attitude? We'll get to that. Okay, spoilers. We'll cut that out. (laughs) So they have this blase attitude as they lie around in fact, Pliny the Elder had gotten up and gone toward it to try to study it. He's, he's drawing it. He's writing about it. And he, they use the word scientific study, Pliny the, Elder, uh, Pliny the Younger does in his letters. And they only start to realize that this is maybe a dangerous occurrence when a messenger comes across the bay from one of the towns that is much closer and more affected by the eruption that the wife of one of Pliny the Elder's friends, a woman by the name of Rectina, she is calling for his help. They can't get away. This, why, this family, this household that is friends with the Plangies are stuck when they're saying, you control the boats, get us out of here. So now you get an opportunity in the letters for Pliny the Younger to talk about how Pliny the Elder is a hero. This story is told in two letters. 
both written by Pliny the Younger, to the historian Tacitus. Now, anyone who's read about classical history, specifically Roman history, Tacitus is, is a writer that you will have heard of. He is the main source for first century Roman history. He writes these incredibly long books, along with another guy named Suetonius and the historian Josephus. Those are really the three sources we have of classical history that you think of. Ironically, Tacitus, who writes these really long books, Tacitus means silent in Latin. Well, he's writing. He's not talking. Good point. But (laughs) you're very good at that. But Pliny the Younger is writing these two letters in posterity to explain what happened because Pliny the Elder is so famous, Tacitus wants to know. It's noteworthy. Yeah, it's noteworthy. Now, we've lost Tacitus's account of this. Um, the problem with a lot of Roman history is that you only have portions of it. Um, I can't remember how many t- books Tacitus wrote, but he wrote a lot, you know, a large number, and we have a small portion of the beginning of it. He ends somewhere at like 60, 65, 66 or something. He's Rome's James Patterson. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he ends somewhere, and it's like 10 to 15 years before these events. So we only know of his foreshadowing the events in earlier books. Like he talks about the early earthquakes. He talks about some of those things. Um, but that's where this comes from. There's two letters. There's one letter about what happens to Pliny the Elder, and then there's one letter about what Pliny the Younger does. Pliny the Elder one has more info to it, and that's where I'm starting. Okay, that's that first quote about the pine tree comes from Pliny the Elder's story. So what ends up happening is Pliny the Younger writes that his uncle gets up, gets a boat, and goes straight toward the volcano to rescue people. And, you know, that, that's, that's brave. And I don't think it's foolhardy brave either. He's got a boat. They don't. Go save people with the boat. Okay, we don't know how long this volcano is going to erupt. We don't know how big and explosive it will be. There's already a giant cloud in the air. But obviously, it's not affecting them in a way that's making them terrified. Either it's not that bad yet, or they're just idiots. And I don't think it was that big and bad of an eruption yet. That's what I think establishes this initial view. However, it's pretty obvious that as Pliny the Elder approaches the household that he's trying to go visit, that things are more dicey than originally thought. So when he's on the boat, there's a good quote here. He, Pliny the Elder was now so close to the mountain that the cinders, which grew thicker and hotter the nearer he, he approached, fell into the ships, together with pumice stones and black pieces of burning rock. He continues. Here he stopped to consider whether he should turn back again, to which the pilot advising him to do so, so he responds to the pilot, he says, Fortune favors the brave. Steer to where their household is. Is that his quote? That's his quote. That's where it comes from. So good. How is that not on the bottle? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Missed opportunity. To those who don't know. (laughs) No, don't explain it. All right. Don't explain it. If you're over 21, email the show and we'll tell you. (laughs) All right. But he says, you know, we're brave. We're going to go for it. Now, there's a problem here. Is that due, likely due to the volcanic eruption, the winds were blowing into shore. Mind you, these are sailboats. And they're not blowing toward the place they want to go. Instead, they're blowing to a different area, a small town um, called Stabiae. And 
Pliny the Elder reaches a man by the name of Pompeianus, who is a friend of his, with his household, Pompeianus's household, in Stabiae. And once he's there and this volcanic eruption's happening, remember the description I just said. The sky is black with burning rock falling out of the sky. Literal stones are falling everywhere. Though apparently they're too light to hurt people, but there's stones falling from the sky and there's ash everywhere. The ground starts to shake at this point. Pliny the Elder arrives at this household and the people there are panicked. They're terrified. They want to leave. But Pliny the Elder is said to look up at the hillsides where Mount Vesuvius is among the hills and claim that the fires that they can all see have nothing to do with the volcano. It's just the peasants burning and looting their cities. Relax, the fire is not coming down the hill. Then he proceeds to take a bath. So he's not the hero of the story. <laughs> it gets worse. It always gets worse. He is, and Pine the Younger is writing this. He is writing that after he takes his bath, he goes to sleep. He takes Pompeianus's bed, I believe, and goes to sleep. While Pompeianus and his family, this guy he's there visiting and his friend, are in like the living room and courtyard panicking. He, Pliny the Younger specifically writes, they don't sleep at all and are kept up, not by the volcano, but by Pliny the Elder snoring, sonorous snoring. Pliny the Younger, I think, is trying to present his uncle as this man relaxed in the most dire of situations. I mean, there is an arrogance to... Uh... Roman nobility, historically, famously. I think that's what he's trying to do. And what I'm wondering about, and as this story progresses, you know, you keep this thought in your head, how much of this is him twisting the account? How much of this is him putting a guise on the experience of playing the Elder to make him seem better or more grand than he actually was? For all intents and purposes, he did say that quote. I mean, there's no way for us to know. But his actions afterwards are to go to sleep while the volcanic eruption is falling around them. Well, when morning comes, ash is still falling. And Pliny, the elder, among all of Pompeianus and his household, have really two choices that they have to think about. And this is the way that disasters work. Is if you make the correct choice, you survive. If you make the incorrect choice, you die. And the two choices they have is this. As the ash is falling and the pumice stones are falling and it seems like the volcanic eruption is getting worse and worse, they can either hide in the buildings where the ash is filling up around the, around the buildings and on the roofs, or they can try to run away and potentially get struck in the head by a rock. They're discussing this and they decide that, well, unless the ash suddenly stops, likely the buildings are going to collapse. And indeed, a huge portion of the bodies that we find buried in the ash are underneath roofs. So their solution was, all right, well, at least we have some agency if we go and try to run away. We can have, if we get lucky and we don't get hit by a rock, or, hey, why don't we do this instead? Let's tie pillows to our heads so we can make makeshift helmets. So just get this in your mind, a bunch of, <laughs> I know they didn't all wear togas, but toga-clad, Romans with pillows on their heads. So this is less ancient Roman vibes and more like frat toga party vibes. Pillow on head, bedsheet toga. <laughs> a little bit like that, yeah. But I mean these are in, these these are people in a really dire situation. They're like I got to get out of here. And so they run down to the seaside 
And they can't really get a boat. And they're kind of waiting there. And it's at this point when they all start to smell sulfur. That's not a good thing. Because when you start to smell sulfur, that means the volcano is releasing toxic gases. Oftentimes, sulfur is also accompanied with carbon dioxide, which in high enough concentration, we're talking very small concentrations, will suffocate you. I mean, if, you, if the atmosphere around you is all sulfur and carbon dioxide and not oxygen, you're not going to survive. So Pliny the Elder goes down to... So this, he's awake now. He, he is awake now, <laughs> with the pillow on his head. He goes down to the seaside, and he passes out. I spoke too soon. He falls over, and he dies. And apparently, his entire group that was with him did not suffer the same fate. And we have a very early account of asthma. Because Pliny the Younger writes that his uncle had two things going against him. He had the fact that he was significantly overweight, hence the snoring. That's what he calls, that gives the reason for the snoring. And he also had an inflamed throat that would sporadically get inflamed and cause difficulty in breathing. His uncle simply had an asthma attack in a volcanic environment and died. So his crew saves the people, they get away, and when they come back multiple days later, he is there as if he had just fallen asleep. There, are, there is no ash around him in that area, he just looks as if he took a nap, but he's dead. And I'm wondering if Pliny the Younger writes this letter in this way, that fortune favors the brave, and he goes off and acts bold and help to calm these people down. I'm wondering if he wrote that to try to give the just kind of maybe bland, sad death of his uncle a little greater meaning. You know, sometimes we editorialize the death of famous people in a way that makes them seem a little bit bolder, more grand. Maybe it's a way to save face. People talk a lot about the idea of a death befitting of their station, that kind of thing. You lived a grand life, and you want, especially in that day and age, and you want you want to go out like he, th- that old idea of he died the way he lived. It's not super inspiring when it's he died the way he lived with difficulty breathing. Yeah, after taking a nap during a volcano. Right, exactly. After taking a bath and a nap, and then he got winded and died. Instead, we want to think of him as a man who boldly went to save people and was tragically killed by this natural disaster. And even to be perfectly honest, I'd rather think of it like that. I have no you know, stake in this. But I read this story and it immediately cropped into my head as, this seems fishy. This seems like he's twisting things. But why not? And please don't expect it to end there. It's, it's anticlimactic. Even the name, Pliny the Elder, it just it conjures like a mythos around it. It's everything, everything about his station in life, and down to his name, says destined for significance. And he actually had, in his lifetime, significance. Yeah. He wrote that massive natural history, the first encyclopedia. He was like a Roman Aristotle, one of the greatest writers of the Roman Silver Age. This was a guy that, it just seems fitting that he went out bravely. So apparently, the historian Tacitus, after receiving this first letter from Pliny the Younger about what happened to Pliny the Elder, wanted more information. So he specifically asked Pliny the the Younger to tell him what happened to himself. What happened to Pliny the Younger from Pliny the Younger's view? So we have not only the 
multi-sourced account of Planet of the Elder, because if you think about it, someone had to tell Planet of the Younger what happened to Planet of the Elder. I mean, the helmsman is given a couple of words, and so my, my guess would be that the helmsman, the guy who was controlling the boat, uh, he probably came back and said, well, your, your uncle's dead. So just keep that in mind. That happens a, a little while later when Planet of the Younger's story. A lot of Planet of the Younger's story involves him trying to wait for his uncle to return. So just have that in your mind as I go through Planet of the Younger's story because that helps to explain why he's reticent to move. So in one of my all-time favorite quotes in terms of this story comes from Planet of the Younger's summary of his actions. He says, I know not whether I should call my behavior in this dangerous juncture courage or folly. It's like the second line in that letter that he sends to Tacitus, the second letter. He's a good writer. Yes, yes he is. Mind you, that's translation. It's, it's a very complicated Latin sentence. So it probably sounds even better in the native tongue. Yes. Um, I'm using the, uh, a very old, like from 1902, Harvard translation for all of these quotes, but the first one I said, the one about the pine tree. That one comes from a, a penguin translation, which is, it does change it quite a bit, how you uh, translate things. But I don't think because we're, it's that important for this. We can cut all this out. This is, this is just, this is table talk. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we're going to return back to the beginning of the story because that's where Pliny the Younger starts his own story. He writes about how his uncle left to go be courageous and save people. And Pliny the Younger, while there's a massive pine tree-shaped cloud and the ground begins to shake, continues to read Livy. He then proceeds to take a bath. And then he goes to bed. Now, Pliny the Younger does say that at least he didn't sleep well. <laughs> Pliny the Elder slept well. Pliny the Younger did not. That matters. And so when morning arrives, it's clear that things are not going swimmingly for the Campania region or the city of Mycenae. A Spanish friend of his uncle arrives, and this guy actively yells at Pliny the Younger and his mother to leave. He basically looks at them and calls them morons. Get out of here. What is wrong with you, you stupid idiots? It's rude. It's also warranted. <laughs> At this point, they're noticing that the ash falls in their narrow courtyard are starting to get pretty high. They're now having to walk through like ankle to knee deep ash, which is not a good thing. It's a non-trivial amount of ash. And that the light is becoming increasingly faint and doubtful. It's getting doubtful. dark. Jeez, doubtful is quite the word to describe your access to daylight. Yeah. I like it. Not Not the ash, but... The visual that conjures. Yeah. But think about it. Doubtful. It's estimated it's about 11 a.m. is when they decide to leave. That's when the light, the day after they notice the eruption, is starting to get doubtful. And not only do they leave, but we got to remember, these are people in some form of standing. They, these are the, the leaders of the city that they're in. So when they leave, everyone follows them. They probably were in a latifundia which what that means is they were the owners of a massive household so that pretty much everybody was in their employ. This is my interpretation, so that when they leave, they're the leaders of the house leaving, so all the servants follow them. And then all of the attached townsfolk and people all follow them too. So everyone's waiting on them to leave. Stressful. Yeah. So Planet of the Younger describes that fleeing. They're, they're trying to go 
away. But if you look at where Mycenaeum is on the coast, there's no real good way for them to run away. As far as I can tell, they're kind of going up the hill, trying to go to a high ground. Because it's kind of on a point that sticks out into the Mediterranean Sea. Well, Vesuvius is to like the northeast of it. And to get away from Vesuvius, they'd either have to go toward the ash or toward Vesuvius. So I'm not entirely sure which direction they think they can go, but he does talk about going upwards. But he describes that massive fleeing of peoples like this. Being at a convenient distance from the houses, we stood still, in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The chariots, which we had ordered to be drawn out, were so agitated backwards and forwards, though upon the most level ground, that we could not keep them steady, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea seemed to roll back upon itself and to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth. It is certain, at least, the shore was considerably enlarged and several sea animals were left upon it. On the other side, a black and dreadful cloud broken with rapid zigzag flashes revealed behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These last were like sheet lightning, but much larger. So the, his initial letter almost sounds like there's a burst of the volcano erupting and then you have the fallout. But what we're, what we're looking at here is continuous eruption. Yeah. It's the following day and we're not just going like, well, the ash is getting really close. It's like the volcano is still erupting. And that's causing some odd things to happen. So first of all, those chariots are rocking backwards and forwards on level ground. That's implying earthquakes. There's nothing they can do to keep these stable because the ground's shaking so much. And then the most telling thing is the sea seemed to roll back upon itself. That is what happens before a tsunami. Mm -hmm. There have been some recent tsunamis that we've caught on film finally and the really deadly 2000, Boxing Day 2004 tsunami. There's video of the sea just retreating really far. And you, people would go out and look for the creatures and stuff and then get hit by the tsunami wave. Well, he's the first person in history to mention the sea pulls back. And they're all watching it and looking down saying, that's not normal. I shouldn't be able to see those sea animals. And then to turn and look at the volcano and the black cloud is a, a light with lightning flashes zigzagging past it that are stronger and bigger than any thunderstorm he has ever experienced. This just goes up a notch in terms of the dangerous and deadly nature of what's happening. Makes you glad that he's not chalking it up to divine intervention. He'd be like, the gods are pissed. Well, exactly. And that's the part that's so amazing to me is that there's only a little bit of mention about people saying things like that. And it's right around this instant um, that people start to say those things. So what ends up happening is that Spanish guy who told him to leave, that guy just goes as fast as he can away. Because poor Planning the, the Younger, he's having to lead his mother along. And his mother is an old woman. And he also says that um, on account of her age and corpulency, she could not move quickly. Seems to run in the family. Yeah, he's basically implying that she's so fat she can't walk, which is unfortunate when trying to outrun a volcano. And apparently a tsunami. <laughs> exactly. So they have to find their way slowly away from the city, and he's leading her, and the entire time she's like begging him to ditch her. Leave me behind. You're young. I'll be fine. And he refuses, and he leads her away at a super slow pace. But at this point, their biggest worry was not the ash. They were more afraid of being crushed on the roads by the crowds. 
So many people are fleeing so quickly that you get a stampede. People are getting crushed together or stomped mm -hmm. on. So eventually, though, they manage to find a point of what he calls comparative safety with this whole crowd. Basically, the entire city leaves at once. And he rides, writes about the chaos in that comparative safety like so. We had scarcely sat down when night came upon us. This is at about 1 p.m. Not such as we have when the sky is cloudy, or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up, and all the lights put out. You might hear the shrieks of women, the screams of children, and the shouts of men, some calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, and seeking to recognize each other by the voices that replied, one lamenting his own fate, another that of his family, some wishing to die, some from the fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were no gods at all, and that the final endless night of which we have heard had come upon the world. There's a flair for the dramatic in there. Well, I think it had a pretty big impact. Oh, on yeah, it. it's warranted. He's in, it's the afternoon or early, you know, late morning, and the sky, which he saw in the distance as covered in the biggest amount of lightning he's ever seen, simply moves over their heads, and it turns off the sun so quickly that it's like someone shutting all the shutters in a room and putting all the lights out. And it must have happened so quickly that people came into an utter panic. Now, what's happening to Mount Vesuvius has been well studied. So we know what's happening at this point in the eruption. The simplest description of the eruption is that it came in four phases. The first big cloud was the beginning of the eruption that just layered everything in ash. That's what they all saw at their villa. The second phase of the eruption is this big cloud that descends on them. This is the cloud that caused the fires in the hills. This is the cloud that caused the sulfur gas that killed Pliny the Elder. And it's the second cloud that is what is called a pyroclastic surge. Now, pyroclastic is one of the coolest words. Pyro means fire, clastic means broken. It means broken fire. And it's when the volcanic ash mixes with the lava and basically turns into a slurry, think of it as a lava smoothie, that rushes down the hill, the side of the mountain. This is what caused all the damage in the Mount St. Helens eruption. That was a pyroclastic flow, which is more of a lava-like flow. It's the, it's the lava flow that you see in movies about lava. Yeah, except it's usually the color of ash. It, the pyroclastic surge that hits this area was very localized and it likely reached hundreds of degrees and it was apparently um, discontinuous meaning the beginning of the flow didn't really cause much damage it just caused a lot of ash but what came behind the flow was hundreds of degrees hotter filled with burning rocks and choking ash and that is what runs straight into Pompeii at this point None of the characters, the actual people, but we can think of them as characters, none of the people involved in this that survived were in Pompeii. That's, you know, survival bias. Mm -hmm. Because if they had been in Pompeii, they'd be dead. Because Pompeii is hit directly by this pyroclastic surge, this swarming cloud of broken fire. And the people still there are all still there. But what we did is we dug them out and we found basically the hole that the person was in. So there are human-shaped holes in Pompeii that they then filled with plaster to show the contorted positions that the bodies were in when they were hit by this 
wave of fire. The people were flash burned to death. They were carbonized. They were killed so quickly by this. At least, you know, high hundreds, about a thousand. That is what Pliny the Younger saw. But because he was to the west, he didn't get hit by that. He just got hit by ash. That was cool. So they just got buried. He was lucky. He was in the right spot. Similarly, very heavy ash falls hit the city of Herculaneum. And we find all the people dead in Herculaneum in these odd, high-roofed houses with these really tall peaks on an area that is no longer the, the coastline but used to be the coastline. So all the people that we find in Herculaneum were waiting in boathouses. That's the only explanation for the shape of these buildings, that they would hook boats to the roof inside, the boats would be inside. So the people were likely fleeing the city on the second day, and they couldn't get away because all the boats were gone. So they were hiding out in the areas where the boats were. Hoping to weather the storm, so to Hoping speak. Hoping to weather the storm. And the, the ash was so intense, there's so much of it, Herculaneum is right at the base of Vesuvius, that the ash collapsed the roofs on top of them. So you really have two ways that people died. They were either burned to death or they were buried to death and crushed. There are a few people we found here and there who are outside with um, rocks on their heads. Should have taken the pillows. Yeah. I mean, they're big rocks too. Those are called volcanic bombs. So when the volcanic launches out such a big rock that they can be the size of a boulder. They're all over Northern California. If you ever see a random boulder in Northern California, you're like, how did that get there? It got shot out of a volcano. Volcanoes are the coolest horrible things well they're they're totally deadly but at the same time it's just so much power it's grandiose yeah so Pliny the Younger and his mother and terrified townsfolk basically waited out they stay where they were when they got to that place they don't really describe where of comparative safety and when they return they describe that Mycenaeum or Mycenaeum looks like it's covered in snow it looks like they got hit by a blizzard and even as they return, the earth is still shaking. The aftershocks of the volcano are still going. This is two days afterwards. And they just sit there and wait for Pliny the Elder to return. Now, the most unfortunate aspect of history is the fact that we depend on disasters like this one to give us insight into how people lived. Not just with the experience of the two Plinies, all the people they were with, but because when cities get covered in ash, they get preserved. So we've dug up Pompeii. It was under many feet of ash. And we dug Pompeii up, and it has given us an untouched view into first century Roman life that we would not have gotten otherwise. Those buildings that still exist in places like Rome and Neapolis and Milan and things like that from the Roman time period are the biggest and grandest of the buildings. Think the Colosseum or the Temple of, insert Roman god here. But you don't get to see the markets, the houses, the brothels. The stuff not built to stand the test of time. Exactly. That is pretty much absent. Our only real way of finding out about that is finding trash dumps, or when they're talked about in plays, or tragedies. Flash floods and volcanoes and earthquakes that caused those places to be buried under lots of dirt. And when you unveil Pompeii, you see all sorts of really cool stuff. The part that really reveals to me how well the Romans were living 
was that there were mosaic, there were mosaic artworks everywhere. Little artwork made from little stones of different colors that described for everything from erotic scenes in brothels to my favorite, which on the floor of a Pompeii house, there is a dog with a spiked collar and the words Kawe Canum written below it, which means beware of the dog. <laughs> That's amazing. And you realize that humans are just going to be humans regardless of when they lived. Humans get a human. All over the walls of Pompeii's graffiti. And the vast majority of it, it's like something you'd see in the bar of a, a bathroom of a bar. For, it's like for a good time. Call Aphrodite. <laughs> go find Claudius. <laughs> go find Claudius. At this place, Claudius swore, swore away women forever. <laughs> and some of it is much, much more graphic than that. You'd expect that from a, uh, from a society that does mosaic pornography. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, and you look at the artwork, too. They look life accurate. They were legitimate artists. You go and look at medieval art from like, you know, 1200, and everybody looks all weird. It looks like a bad cartoon. You go and look at these mosaic art pieces, go do a Google search. It look, it's very interesting to look at. We'll put it in the show notes. You can actually see what the people look like. They actually look like people. And there, there's pictures of animals and fruit and, you know, still life in these mosaic paintings that look like the thing. And so for a historian or anthropologist to look at this, you are actually able to see a photograph from the time period. That is so cool. But we depend on tragedy to produce it. In like the most silver lining of all ways, the Mount Vesuvius eruption not only gives us a wonderful insight to what a volcanic eruption was like, which is always good to get more information on that, it gives us this quick snapshot into the life of the two Pliny's and their ridiculous opinion of that volcanic eruption at the very beginning and then the rather terrifying outcome of their lackadaisical attitude. They should have gotten up and just left. But we also get the wonderful material that it provides us as historians. The only sad thing about history is all you do is study dead people. But in the end, the, the story of the two Pliny's stands to me as the ultimate footnote in history because it's an interesting story that usually gets one line in history textbooks. And also... Two wonderful beers. That's true. God, when does Pliny the Younger go on tap again? Thanks for tuning in for this episode about Mount Vesuvius and Pliny the Elder. You can discuss this episode and all the others on Facebook, link in the show notes. Our next series is titled Grandeur, and it's going to be a three-part series on people who think that they are the most important person in the world. If you've got a moment, we would love for you to take the time to review us on iTunes. It would really help the show out. And until next time, take care.